last wipe before we attempt to revive her. By the look on everyone's face, we are all a little freaked out. Or maybe it's just me. Take two fingers, the teacher says. Place them just below your baby's nipples in the center of her chest and push. Um, so the book is, as, as Nellie said, the book started as this sort of, uh, it started as a meditation on the aggregate photographs, but then it, uh, at a certain point, it, it takes me a long time to write a book. At a certain point, uh, we decided to have a baby. And I was hoping to finish the book before then, but I didn't. So the baby actually, it, you know, gratefully took over the book. Um, and pushed out a lot of the torture out of the book. Um, so actually that passage that Nellie read was probably one of the longest passages of, of talking about torture. Um, <laughs> that one, wouldn't you say? It's yeah. funny that that's the one I... That's, so that's why, why you read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that's uh, sort of one, one of the beats, one of the threads to go through the book. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about before I met with the uh, Iraqis, um, what was I going to say about this? Uh, oh, to go with that, uh, there's, there's this handout that people uh, got. Did people get this handout? There's a little handout that uh, some people have. Uh, and there's all these quotes on it that I sort of put together this other, uh, the other talk I gave to doctors. Um, and then I pulled it out. And uh, on the bottom of the, the first page, it's an interesting one to go with that box of dolls one, the doctor ones. Um, what happens to the metaphysician after Dachau is a famous question. What happens to the physician after Mengele is not so often asked. And that's uh, Heather McHugh and Nikolai Popov from the preface to their translation to Paul Salant's bottle stop. I just have these quotes that will uh, sort of float in the air while I do some readings. Um, the next one is, um, uh, I'm going to read a poem that I wrote before I met the Iraqis. Um, uh, just that I think it's... Uh, it was interesting because it was pure projection. There was no, um, uh, uh, you know, I, this was just sort of based on this mediated image of the uh, of, of the people that I didn't know, obviously. Um, and uh, the one thing I thought that would be a nice quote to go with this poem is on the, the last quote uh, from Tim O'Brien. And Tim O'Brien, from his uh, book, The Things They Carried, uh, he has this great quote, uh, and true from, it's from the story, I think, how to write a true war story. A true war story is never moral. It does not instruct nor encourage virtue nor suggest models of proper human behavior nor restrain men from doing the things men have always done. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. If at the end of a war story you feel uplifted or if you feel that some small bit of rectitude has been salvaged from the larger waste, then you have been made the victim of a very old and terrible lie. There is no rectitude whatsoever. There is no virtue. As a first rule of thumb, therefore, you can tell a true war story by its absolute and uncompromising allegiance to obscenity and evil. You can tell a true war story if it embarrasses you. If you don't care for obscenity, you don't care for the truth. If you don't care for the truth, watch how you vote. Send guys to war, they'll come home talking dirty. Um, I thought that was nice the day after uh, election day. So I'm going to read, um, this is a poem, this is a poem that I wrote um, before, um, that was going to be part of this book. Uh, the book had these, all these poems in it, it had a very strange uh, structure to it, and then the poems ended up coming out, and they're going to come out in another book. But they were essential for me to write the book, and they were sort of what got me to Iraq, was writing these books, or to uh, Istanbul, to, to actually meet the people that I was uh, looking at. And this poem um, borrows freely from the culture uh, at large, there's uh, lines in here, or at least like echoes of 
songs, um, Galway Canal, Hart Crane, Walt Whitman, Bruce Springsteen, Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, the Britney that's mentioned is uh, Britney Spears, um, whose work was used uh, uh, at some point to torture prisoners in Iraq. As far as I understand, now the ASCAP is pressing the U.S. military for uh, royalty payments. Fire. More the idea of the flame than the flame, as in the flame of the rose petal, the flame of the thorn. The sun is a flame, the dog's teeth flames. To be clear, with the body, Captain, we can do as we wish. We can do as we wish with the body, but we cannot leave marks. Captain, I'm trying to get this right. The, the world's so small, the sky's so high, we pray for rain, it rains, we pray for sun, it suns. We pray on our knees, we move our lips, we pray in our minds, we clasp our hands. Our hands look tied before us. I remember, Captain, something. It didn't happen, not to me. This guy, I knew him by face. I don't remember his name. One night, walking home from a party, a car had clipped him. For hours, he wandered, dazed. His family, his neighbors, with flashlights, they searched all night in the woods, calling out. Here's the part, Captain, where I tell a story as if it were a confession. I was hiding out on Damon Rock, lighting matches and letting them drop to the leaves below. Little flare-ups, flash fires. A girl wandered down the path. She just stood there, watching the matches fall from my hand. Captain, I'm trying to be precise. Hot day, a cage in the sun, a room without air, the mind-bending heat, the music aflame. Hey Metallica, hey Brittany, hey Airless, hey Fuse, I... Don't know how it happened. Perched far above, I offered her a match to pull down her pants. One match, her hairless body. Hey, little girl, I dropped it unlit. I didn't know what it was I was looking at. Hey, Captain, I don't know if I'm allowed. Hey, Captain, years ago, I'm walking. One drunk night, even now, I wonder. Sometimes still, I imagine. Was I hit in my days, this dream, this confession? Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Hey, captain, hey, sir, am I making any sense? The boy stood on the burning deck, stammering elocution. Wait, the boy stood in the burning cage, stammering electrocution. No, the boy stood in the hot, hot room, stammering, I did, stammering, I did, stammering, I did. Stammering, I did, stammering, everything you say I did, I did. Hey Metallica, hey Britney, hey Airless, hey Fuse, hey Phonograph, hey Hades, hey Thoughtless, hey. Captain, this room is on fire. Captain, this body will not stop burning. Captain, oh my captain, this burning has become a body. Captain, oh my captain, this child is ash. Captain, oh my captain, my hands pass right through her. Captain, oh my captain, I don't know what it is I'm looking at. It's important to be precise, to say what I know. The sun is fire, the center of the earth is fire. Your mother's cunt is fire, an airless flame. Still, still, I don't know why she pushed me out. This cold, cold furnace, we all were pushed. A room of light around our heads. She gave a kick, sent us crawling out. Toward the flame, toward the pit, the flaming pit, your lover's tongue, the flame, a thorn. 
Every day, Captain, sir, Captain, I was left a child after school, alone. I found a match under the sink. I found a can, a spray can, Lysol disinfectant. It made a torch. I was careful the flame didn't enter the can. I knew it would explode. Somehow I knew. I'm trying to be clear, sir. The flame shot across the room. Then it was gone. Um, so that's a poem I wrote sort of early on in the book, in the writing of the book. And it's sort of uh, a little crazy. Um, and it has a million voices in it. And it sort of inhabits uh, U.S. military personnel and uh, uh, pop culture and uh, my own, you know, uh, sort of vague autobiography and Iraqis. Uh, and then just in the process of writing the book, I had started to meet more and more of the actual people. So the book sort of transformed and became this more, uh, uh, this other type of book. Um, although I kind of like the early book, it's sort of completely, uh, I mean, I like the, uh, I like that poem. <laughs> it's a very strange energy in it. Um, so, I'm going to read a little more of the, go back to the, uh, one of the reasons I, I wrote the book um, was, uh, uh, is this, 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 this quote, I'll go back to this quote on the uh, page, the top of the second page. From uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, via Stanley Kunitz, who taught at Columbia, in a talk on Salan, uh, uh, Paul Salan. Um, it's on the top of the second page, the back page. Evil is built into our whole manufacture and political system. It's not a person. Perhaps the way to confront the adversary is to confront him in ourselves. We must make living and dying important again. I think that's um, an important. Uh, uh, idea for my work, uh, at least for me to, as a as a writer, to approach something. It's very easy for me to um, uh, project or to uh, get angry and say, you know, how could how could those soldiers in that place do that? But it's more interesting for me as a as a writer to uh, just to see my own part in it. You know, my own uh, uh, you know where where it sort of intersects with my life. Um, one of the things that I found in writing this book was that um, I, I wrote this other book. Uh, another bullshit night in Suck City, and that was about my father and uh, the years he spent homeless and uh, how I met him. And he would tell these stories, and one of the stories he would tell, which I didn't put in that book because it seemed too outrageous. I mean, he, and he's full of outrageous stories. Um, uh, you know, one of his stories before this was uh, that, that did make it into the first book was that his father had invented the life raft. Um, and that seemed very uh, far fetched to me for a homeless person to feel that his father invented the life raft. Um, and in the course of writing the book, I found out it was true. I actually found the, the blueprint for it. Like right after the uh, uh, Titanic went down, they had life boats on the Titanic. And his grandfather, or his father, his, I so, I can't remember now, oh my god. It would have been his father? His father invented life rafts, so my grandfather. Because um, um, uh, they didn't have, so he made a device that would float, but it went in the water, it wouldn't sink, but it went in the water when he made the first life raft. Uh, so I have the blueprint in the first book. Um, but another one of the stories he told was about being in federal prison. Uh, he'd spent some time in federal prison for uh, something like bank robbery. And uh, he um, would tell a story about it. He, he, he did it the way you, uh, uh, you're you supposed to do it. So you sort of pretend you're sick, so you go to the hospital in the prison. And um, But unfortunately, what he didn't know is that, uh, or what he claimed that was that while he was in the hospital, he was experimented on. 
And the experiments they did were, you know, sounded much like torture to me. Um, but it seemed too, that seemed too outrageous, so I didn't actually put it in the first book. And then when I was writing this book about torture, I started to think about it a little more. So I'm going to read a passage about that um, from here. So this is sort of how uh, I sort of... And I think all of these things, I think like the Abergrave photographs sunk into each of us in uh, very particular ways. We all had to make our own sense of it. And this is sort of one of the ways I made sense of it. So Lexington, Kentucky. And my father, uh, he was homeless for about five years, and this, uh, where I'm reading, it picks up in the book where he's, uh, he's been in an apartment for about a dozen years or so, but he's on the verge of eviction for hoarding things. He has a, uh, his, his apartment is filled with newspaper and it's a fire hazard. So I'm sneaking in while he's away and throwing everything away. Or trying to, trying to drag stuff out. Lexington, Kentucky. When I see my father those last few months, desperate to keep him from homelessness again, I was unsure if he knew who I was. From moment to moment, it seemed, I'd fade in and out of focus. When I tried to explain the urgency of his imminent eviction, he'd interrupt me. Dry balls, he'd yell, will you let me speak? Dry balls, this was new, this was a twist. It had its desired effect at least the first dozen times he used it, in that I'd stand before him completely unnerved. I didn't, after all, have a child at this point. Will you let me speak? And then he'd launch into one of the handful of stories that I've heard a hundred times before, sometimes the one about his time in federal prison. They left me alone in a dark room for days on end, shackled to the floor. And when they moved me, which they did constantly and for no reason, they shackled me even more, penis included. I didn't want to imagine how one shackles a penis, let alone my father's, which I didn't want to imagine at all. Over the years of trying to keep my father inside, after I'd ransacked his apartment for a couple hours, I'd meet him and Inez in the park or at a restaurant. Then we'd walk him back to his apartment, see if he'd notice what was no longer there. He'd look around his room furiously for a moment or two, and then let it go, as if some part of him knew we were just trying to help. As we prepared to leave, my father would turn to Inez, who he took to calling Buttercup, gesture toward her. Are you leaving the woman, he'd say, he'd ask hopefully. Are you leaving Buttercup with me? 2006. A historian is on the radio talking about the history of the CIA's 50-year involvement in developing the torture techniques we saw enacted in the Abergrave photographs. The most effective technique they found was to combine sensory deprivation with self-inflicted pain, the so-called light methods. Think of the now iconic photographs of the man on the box, hooded, his arms outstretched. This technique is not new, and it certainly wasn't invented by a few rogue nitwits on the night shift. It is a highly sophisticated stress position developed with the aid of the CIA during Brazil's dirty war and is known among the professionals as the Vietnam. These days, when the Iraqis pass around the photograph of the man on the box, they simply refer to it as the Statue of Liberty. At one point in the interview, McCoy mentions the medical wing of federal prisons as the sites of early experimentation. Apparently, the CIA used federal prisoners to test the limits of what the body, the psyche, could withstand. Two of the main sites of these clandestine and illegal experiments were the prisons in Lexington, Kentucky, and Marion, Illinois, both of which my father passed through during his stint behind bars. I'll be damned. Still, no Ishmael has come forward, not yet, to say, yes, I was there, I was with him, what your father says is true. I have not found that person, if he even exists, who was strapped into the bed next to my father in the medical wing of Marion Federal Prison. 
I've not found anyone who can say that they heard my father scream or saw him chained. I've not found a document with his name on it, numbers written into the margins. How long he was kept awake, how long he was made to kneel, how cold the cell was at night. All I have is a paranoid old man who somehow tells the same stories I now hear on the radio. Um, I think I'll read this one too. Um, this is, uh, comes right after, it's called the Gulag Archipelago. Gulag Archipelago. For years, my father, the self-proclaimed greatest writer America has yet produced, has compared himself to Solzhenitsyn. First in his letters he sent me from prison and now face to face. Solzhenitsyn will be green with envy when he reads this shit, my father says, thumbing his unpublished manuscript. Solzhenitsyn was arrested in the Soviet Union in 1945 for writing a derogatory comment in a letter to a friend. Accused of anti-Soviet propaganda under Article 58, he was sentenced to eight years in the Gulag. My father, arrested in 1976 for passing forged checks, was sentenced to three to five years. Solzhenitsyn's book on his time in prison include The Cancer Ward and The Gulag Archipelago. In The Gulag Archipelago, he writes, they gave precedence to the so-called light methods. We will see what they were immediately. This way was sure. Indeed, the actual boundaries of human equilibrium are very narrow, and it is not really necessary to use a rack or hot coals to drive the average human being out of his mind. You might wonder, perhaps, if my father got confused reading Solzhenitsyn, confused whatever he went through in prison with what Solzhenitsyn went through. It's certainly possible that my father read Solzhenitsyn's account and transposed himself into his skin, his chair, his chains. But the secret history of the CIA's experiments on federal prisoners begs the question. Did someone at the CIA also read the Gulag Archipelago and think, ah, the key? Solzhenitsyn spends three pages documenting the various tortures he was subjected to and concluded that these light methods, sensory deprivation, prolonged standing, extremes of temperature, forced sleeplessness, were the most effective, at least at breaking one's will and causing long-term damage. The CIA, it seems, came to the same conclusions. In Solzhenitsyn's account of life in the Soviet Gulag were his way of dragging into the light what had happened to him, in part so it would never happen again. As for his tormentors, he writes, but let us be generous. We will, we will not shoot them. We will not pour salt water into them nor bury them in bedbugs, nor bridle them into a swan dive, nor keep them on sleepless stand-up for a week, nor kick them with jackboots, nor beat them with rubber truncheons, nor squeeze their skulls in iron rings, nor push them into a cell so they lie atop one another like pieces of baggage. We will not do any of the things they did, but for the sake of our country and our children, we have the duty to seek them all out and bring them all to trial, not to put them on trial so much as their crimes, and to compel each one of them to announce loudly, yes, I was an executioner and a murderer. Solzhenitsyn's point seems to have been lost, at least on some. His book has been used by some as more of a blueprint than a warning. Um, so then I sort of went and met the guys in um, Abergrave, at, uh, that had been at Abergrave. And uh, so things changed a little bit in the book. Um, this is uh, called Monkey Mind. I, I went, when I went to um, uh, to meet the Miss Simple, I, I was there for two. I was there for two weeks, and I came back. And um, uh, as soon as I came back, I went into a week-long meditation retreat. So there's all this like sort of uh, 
silent meditation retreat. So there's all this um, uh, Buddhism mixed up with the, uh, uh, the detainees. Monkey mind. Some Buddhists believe that as you wander the bardo, that realm between living and dying, you will encounter the physical manifestations of that which terrifies you. Over and over they will appear before you. This is your karmic debt, and only those who are enlightened will walk unafraid. Some believe that enlightenment often comes at the moment of death, just as it can often come at the moment of birth. Most of us, though, spend our given time, our handful of hours, our teaspoonful of years, hovering between these two poles, muddying the water. Monkey minds, some call it, samsara. 2007. In Istanbul, while collecting testimonies, we asked each ex-detainee to describe the room where his torture took place. Each man looked around him. It looked like this room, each responded. There was a table, there was a computer, someone was always behind me. What did the person who tortured you look like, was the next question. And the detainee would look at me, then look at the artist, the only two white men in the room, and either point to him or point to me. He looked like him, was the answer. In some ways, we were mere shadows to them. One evening over dinner in an outdoor restaurant, Amir asked if I was married, if I had children. I've been asked this question for years whenever I travel, and have been looked at with something like pity when I've answered no. My first child will be born in January, I told Amir, a girl. He narrowed his eyes and smiled as if I had just come into focus. Um, and Amir is the, uh, the, the pseudonym we give to the man who is photographed being dragged on a leash by Lindy England. Um, I forgot to say that at the beginning. Uh, then there's this, um, let's read another quote on the uh, thing. This is the, the third one down. This is by William Kentridge. Uh, maybe a lot of you got to see his show at MoMA. Um, he's had a big retrospective at MoMA. Uh, which I was, I was sort of upset about because I, I thought I was the only one who knew about him. <laughs> and then suddenly he has this big retrospective at MoMA. And an opera at Lincoln Center at the same time. Um, so this is the third one down on the first page. To say one needs, needs art or politics which incorporates ambiguities and contradictions it's not to say that one then stops recognizing and condemning things as evil. However, it might stop one being so utterly convinced of the certainty of one's own solutions. There needs to be a strong understanding of fallibility and how the very act of certainty or authoritativeness can bring disaster. Um, and that was another sort of uh, something I kept in mind when I was writing the book. Uh, Kentridge is very helpful. A good influence. So this is um, this is another. This is sort of goes back to the um, um, what I did before with uh, the uh, uh, the poem, the first poem I read. This is sort of incorporating a persona or inhabiting a persona. It's called the ticking is the bomb. This is sort of the last half of the title chapter. Imagine this: you don't even have a child, not yet, but as a thought experiment, you are asked what you'll do when she is kidnapped. Specifically, what you'll do with her kidnapper you have somehow captured, who now sits before you in a windowless room tied to a chair, refusing to tell you where she is hidden, refusing to answer your question. The clock is ticking, they say. Tick, tick, tick. Can you hear it? The falling is the rain. The blowing is the wind. So here I am, the maniac tied to the chair before me. Let's call him Proteus. 
have been told that a bomb is about to go off, potentially killing hundreds or even thousands of innocent people. As I hold on, as I ask him my question, as I listen for his answer, he transforms into a dog in a leash, into a man dancing with panties on his head, into a bruise, into a madman, into a waterfall, into a cockroach in a bowl of rice, into a man strapped into a chair, into 30 men strapped into 30 chairs, refusing to eat, 30 tubes forced down their noses. So here I am, my fingers tight around Proteus's neck, asking my same question over and over, as if the answer exists inside the maniac, inside the prisoner, inside the beloved, inside my mother, inside my father, inside me, as if the answer is there and just needs to be released. And here I am, holding my own head, dunking it into a bathtub full of water, repeating my meaningless question over and over, knowing that I'll never get the question right. And here I am, holding my breath, and then letting it go. Um, so, that was sort of going back into that, and then, that was sort of during, so this was sort of written during the, uh, you know, when I was sort of in the midst of, uh, uh, meeting these guys and sort of being transformed by actually being in the presence, uh, which I, you know, is, is, uh, I mean, that's the big thing about the medical business also, you know, like it's a very different thing to sort of have the patient right in front of you. Um, and uh, then afterwards, I did this thing where I used, um, uh, I, I wrote this other series of poems where I, you, Daniel asked me to collaborate with him. Could you, could, you hit, could you get rid of this screen and the thing behind it will maybe pop up? I have, I'm really bad with PowerPoint. It's not really a PowerPoint at all. This is just like documents. If you hit it up in the, there it is. Yeah, that's good, I think. Yeah, that's good, yeah, that's good. Perfect, nice. Um, so this is the test. I just put, sort of put all the testimonies together um, like this. Uh, you know, he gave me like eight of them and I sort of just, and, and he gave me a transcription of it. I sort of put them all together into one block text uh, at some point. Um, and, uh, and then I went through and I, I erased things. Can you, um, I did a thing that the, 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 the CIA has a sort of, there's a big thing in the, in the poetry world where we're doing a lot of erasure now. We're doing this, this thing where we erase parts of poems and the CIA does it at the same time. And it's called redaction. It's really interesting that when two seemingly, you know, on two different ends of the spectrum. So could you hit the, you get rid of that document? Um, yeah, you hit that red thing up there in the corner there. So we've gone through and erased it. Um, and, and one of the things I did was I, I tried after meeting the guys in uh, Abu Ghraib uh, or you know, in Istanbul, um, the thing that really sort of jumped out at me was their, their deep humanity and how each one had internalized what had happened to them in a completely different way. There was not, I, I went with this sort of, I didn't realize how deep it was, a stereotype in my head about who I would find, what a, a, a survivor of torture would be like. And I had this whole, stereotype in my head, which I, I didn't question because it just seemed like the air I breathed. Um, and, but then when I met them, I was, you know, uh, surprised that I was surprised that each one was completely different and completely human and had, had, you know, internalized what had happened in a completely different way. So one of the things I tried to do with this was to take out the, which is a difficult thing to do because these are all testimonies of abuse. And so I, what I tried to do, I tried to eliminate all that and just make sort of a pleasant little story out of it, um, which is kind of hard to, it's not really that pleasant, but it's, more pleasant than it was. So then I made these poems out of it. So I'll, I'll sort of read, you can sort of see, you can just leave it at this page, and I'll just read a couple of these, how it starts. Um, so now it becomes, I woke up, I asked why, my children, my wife, my leg, outside my head, cold, rainy, a tense, there were others I heard. 
my brother a pipe, cold water at night. They let me go once, my hands always laughing. Um, we did laugh a lot when I met with these guys, actually. Broomstick was I was, you are, we want, one better, one blanket for under and one, and 15 days of food. One man had a heart, a pill under his tongue, a pill, a dog, a broomstick. They knew I was someone, and my house was on luck. They gave me summer, we threw stones and peed. That night in that tent, one on each side, the photographer lifted the ground. The next day to Garso, a cold tank of water, sometimes with ice. They were going and coming, and then they went back. I tried to find myself all night. Um, so, that's those poems. Uh, this is a series, this is like a series of seven, seven redactions in, uh, in this new book. Um, and now I just want to, uh, uh, I want to finish up, I just want to read one last piece and then we can have some questions, uh, if that's good. Um, uh, and this is just a piece with Amir also, this is sort of the last piece that Amir is in, uh, uh, who we met, who just met in that, uh, uh, at dinner. I was having dinner with him. This is when we were taking the testimonies. Istanbul. There's a moment in Amir's story, as there will be in every story, when words are not enough. A moment when the only way to tell us what happened is to show us what they did to his body. At this moment, he pushes back from the table and stands. They hang me this way, he says, and raises his arms out to his side as if crucified in the air. Something about him standing, about his body suddenly rising up, completely unhinges me. Something about it makes his words real in a way they hadn't been before. At this moment, I get it. These words are about his body. It was his body this story happened to. The body that is right here beside me, in this room I could barely even imagine just yesterday. His body that is now filling the air above our heads, our eyes upturned to see him. Amir stands there like that, arms outstretched. The scribe has nothing to write. The painter has nothing to paint. The interpreter has nothing to interpret. The lawyer's eyes are fixed on his eyes. All his words have led to this moment when his body is finally allowed to speak. The lawyer shakes her head slightly. And what happened next, she says softly. And he lowers his arms and sits. Thank you.
and the horror of war. Is, have we lost any semblance of our charge to humanity? Well, I can't you know, speak for the, I mean, for the whole medical community at all. I'm not being part of it at all. But I, I, in the writing of the book, I went to, you know, I actually studied the, um, the AMA quite a bit, the, uh, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, and I went to some of their, uh, uh, their meetings. They, they had an annual meeting up somewhere. I think it was near Columbia. Um, and that I went to, that was quite, quite uh, highly contested because the, the board of the APA at that time, which was just a couple of years ago, like 10 people on the board, and I think like eight of them were military people. And there was a lot of problems with like the, you know, having a, a which one, the psychiatrists can prescribe and, right? And the ones that can't prescribe were being given privileges to prescribe if they went along with the military's position on torture. Uh, there was this sort of, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this deal being made. Um, and uh, it was quite, you know, there was, it was heated. I'd never seen any convention like this ever. Like, people were standing up and screaming in the audience at the people that were giving the talks, uh, you know, and asked, and, you know, demanding they step down. And so it was, you know, quite contentious. A lot of people were, like, dropping out of the APA at that point. Uh, so it's a really contentious thing. I'm not sure what the AMA is, what the A, I mean, I've looked at those positions, but I don't know, you know, at the moment what the situation is. But I know, yeah, there are many medical people, you know, involved in torture at these prisons. Yeah, I mean, so it's. It's problematic. As far as like Doctors Without Borders getting attacked in other countries, I mean that's a that's a whole other story. That's like uh, often you know a weapon of, uh, of uh, you know of a coup d'état or something. You go and you kill all the healthcare workers, and then everyone leaves, and then you get to do what you want to. I mean it's you know that's that was done in Rwanda, and I mean that's like a sort of a, a tactic that's used. Um, I think it's for a different thing. Um, but I don't know. I think that's something for people in you know the medical industry uh, industry to uh, you know deal with. You know, I'm not sure how you do that, except I was interested to see how the people in the APA dealt with it. I was fascinated to see that. Uh, it's wild. It's wild stuff. You know, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of, yeah, a lot of things. Yes? Whatever suffering we're feeling, 
uh, if we sort of throw ourselves at the, at the larger suffering of the world, uh, that can sort of put it in perspective. Um, that was part of it. And then at a certain point, I began you know, doing the meditation quite seriously. Um, again, I went back and meditated every day in the midst of writing this book for uh, two years. Um, and then I, I woke up one day with a baby. <laughs> and then I, I meditate a lot less now, but I, I think of her as my meditation um, in the mornings. I wake up in the mornings with her, we spend a couple hours together, and I sort of make that my meditation. So. Yeah? Or what was her intention or something to invite artists 
and she was a lawyer, which is very odd and very, uh, um, you know, uh, controversial to have artists in a room where all te testimonies are collected. Um, uh, but she recognized, she'd been doing the work for a long time, and she recognized that, that, uh, that her cases, she probably wouldn't win her cases, uh, just the way things are set up. I mean, you know, Obama has also invoked state secrets, and, you know, none of the cases go forward um, at this moment. But there's a historical thing that, you know, the cases of torture in Argentina are just now coming to trial 30 years later. Uh, and the purpose of what we're doing right now is just to sort of gather as much evidence and witnesses as we can, you know, to be used later. Uh, really, it's a thought. Um, you know, perhaps, or it's just to make, it's just you do it because you have to do it. Um, but she was, she's sort of a remarkable person. Uh, her, her name is Susan Burke, she's a lawyer, and she's just on her, on her own money, she's just a private lawyer. She just went and set up an office in Istanbul, or in, um, in uh, Baghdad, and she was the only one keeping track of the detainees, like when they would get kicked out of Abu Ghraib or Camp Buka or Camp Proper, uh, they sort of knew there was a network that they knew they could go and sort of like register at this place and that she would sort of hear their testimonies and you know, put them for a, a civil case, uh, a class action case against various corporations that had profited from torture. Um, and uh, yeah, she, she just seems like a remarkable person and she, we got to meet through Daniel Heyman, uh, the artist. Uh, he had met her because he lived in the same town and she, he had, even from his, you know, I, you know, I, I shouldn't tell him that I say this, I think his other stuff was imperfect, um, his early work. Uh, but even through that, she recognized something. I think she recognized the, the intensity he had, like he had a genuine sort of intensity about the, uh, the situation and, and an outrage. And so she invited him along and then, you know, her inviting him transformed him and then him coming back, uh, you know, transformed me in the book, um, you know, which is the way things work, I think. Uh, and other people went with her also. Uh, uh, Rory Kennedy, who made the book, the, the film *Ghost of Abu Ghraib*, you know, went on one of these trips also. Uh, Tara Kelby, who wrote a book called *Monstering*, went on one of these trips. There's, there's a group of artists, various artists, went and did, did this uh, over the years. So it wasn't really an exclusive club. It was sort of like anyone who could <laughs> who would go, really. Um, is that is that enough? Yeah. Okay. This woman, yeah. Because it was such a cacophony of voices, 
It had so many different voices weaving through it that it, it, the energy was completely different. And it was much more of a poetic energy than the, the book, the, the, the memoir itself has a, you know, more of like a, a narrator that goes through it, you know, a consistent narrator for the most part, even though the narrative gets a little nuts at times. <laughs> we can recognize him well. Mm -hmm. Yes? <laughs> you mentioned uh, <coughs> the election, and it feels to me like the election really just uh, supports all of the stuff that went on. It's like nobody really learned anything. And I wonder if you feel... Do you mean, you mean yesterday's election? Like, 
you know, I don't know if that, that something changes. I mean, this, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Am I hopeful? I don't know. Are you hopeful? Paladino didn't get in. That's something. You know, that could have been worse. Could have been worse. <laughs> we could have had Paladino right now. You know? So. I don't mean to fit in Paladino fans here. I don't. <laughs> yes? Nelly read, um, 
well, an example of that, the, uh, they, but here, they, we give, I gave them all pseudonyms. Um, a lot of the pseudonyms are given to them by the Physicians for Human Rights, so I just use their pseudonyms. Um, uh, uh, yeah, there's a good group, Physicians for Human Rights. And, you know, they're an amazing group. Um, and uh, uh, Alan, they're right based in New York here, too, at Bellevue Hospital, right? Alan Kess Kessler or something. Alan Kessler? Yeah, man. He's a great guy, yeah. Um, he's a psychiatrist, and he's part of the, he was at that conference, too, uh, and he goes and, and does his uh, interviews also. Um, and, but, but that, that ex-soldier from, um, uh, he was an ex-soldier in Saddam's army, and it just seemed like he was the most damaged, like in some way. The guy, Amir, who was the guy being dragged on the leash by Lindy England, was like, I mean, he just did not, you know, not that anyone deserved to be here, but there was just, it was just like ridiculous that he was there. He was just a, like this young businessman in a hotel room waiting for air conditioners and CIA arrested and locked up. And, but the whole time he was made, like he was a very, he was a funny guy. I mean, he was actually really funny and you know, we had a good time together. And he just sort of had this like, you know, but you could see there was some, you know, you know, there was, there was scars and stuff. But um, uh, you could just tell that the entire time he was at the grave, he just thought it was ridiculous. Like that, that he shouldn't have been there. Like he just like, you know, he was just like, this is a mistake. I've done nothing wrong. And that somehow managed to keep him. But with Bashir, uh, Bashir, um, he, um, uh, uh, I think probably he was—he'd been a soldier in Saddam's army. He might have done bad things, you know. He might have done some, some, some you know, messed up things, and which soldiers do in, in the military. And he might have felt he kind of deserved it, you know, which is a very different thing. I mean, that's the psychology of those who get tortured. If you feel you deserve it, it's going to—it's going to affect you in a different way. Uh, and so the two of them came out, and it, it felt like a very different experience for both of them. For me, from just you know, from observing the testimonies I heard, like you know, spending that time with them. So, and that's how I interpreted it. So. And from what I know about survivors of torture, so yeah. Uh, do you feel like you've communicated the stories that you've listened to, or have you only tried to tell your own story? And do you plan on doing anything else with what you've heard? Um, well, the, the book is like the book is done, and now I can you know go do readings and stuff. And it's sort of I do interviews and stuff, and sometimes the interviews are. are there's nothing about torture in them. It's all about, like, you know, having a baby, being a father. Uh, some of the interviews are about, like, you know, complicated love relationships. Uh, some of the interviews are about uh, uh, swimming. I mean, there's, like, a whole range of, uh, you know, threads that go through the book. And, and some people just don't want to pick up the torture thread at all. Uh, and so, and I understand that, too. I mean, it's not something that I would want to, you know, I think it's, like, that somebody even approaches the book at all, even if they, they talk about anything, then you know it's somehow you know they're they're circling around it in some way. Um, you know I think the book the book for me sort of does what I wanted it to do, and I I thought about doing another companion book um, uh, with just the, the the words or somehow structuring the words. I was going to call it the man in the box, the man on the leash, or something, uh, just with those two guys who are two you know two of the people that you know we've worked with, and. Um, uh, but I haven't done that yet, and I don't know if I will. Like, it, it, there was a certain moment where that seemed to make sense, and uh, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll do that. I don't know. That's about all I can think of doing. To be honest. Is that good? Is that one more, last one, or should we wrap it up? All right. Thank you.
not in the book. I know, I read the book. Yeah.